Hey guys, good to see you. Uh, my name's Dan. If I've never met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're tuning in. Love the fact you're joining us this week. Uh, you're jumping in kind of the tail end of a 40-day journey. We've taken uh, 40 days of prayer. Not too late to jump in. Go to our website, check things out, have some resources. Never too late to start a 40-day journey of prayer. We're having this conversation because here's what I know about most of you. If not all of you, most of us pray. Statistics bear that out. We pray, whether long or short, in the car, in the shower, whatever. We pray, and what we said is this, is that we learn different ways to pray. Some of us learn memorized prayers. Uh, we learn to pray from our grandma. We learn to pray in church. Uh, we learn to pray on a, our favorite movie, you know. Uh, but we learn to pray different ways. And some of us, what we learned is we can pray wrong to the wrong audience. We can pray in the wrong ways. And so we leaned in and said, Jesus, teach us to pray, name of the series. And that was our first couple weeks where Jesus just taught the disciples to pray and subsequently taught us to pray. And if you haven't um, checked that out, I'd encourage you to go back, check out those talks together. But then we kind of took a turn and said, okay, <clears throat> now what happens when there's a whole lot of things going on around me that set off a firestorm inside of me. What do I do with the emotions that I feel? And how does that affect my prayer life? And so we said, well, what, how do I pray through my fear? That was two weeks ago. Uh, then last week, Pastor JC, Jonathan, did a great job of leading us through how in the world do we pray through our pain, through the things that we experience that are painful? The question I want to entertain for a few minutes today, uh, and I'm glad you're tuning in, is this. How do you and I pray when we have questions or when doubt flares up and when that doubt in particular surrounds our understanding of God maybe or our thoughts about God? Sometimes life just creates questions and those questions fan and fuel our doubt. Uh, you may have questions. Maybe you're somebody who is struggling in doubt. Maybe you're in a crisis of faith. There's all kinds of things that make people doubt. All kinds of questions, right? Maybe some of these are, are what you're wrestling with. I don't know. Uh, there's like the, the question of exclusivity. There are some people that will say to me like, man, in our sophisticated day of advanced thinking, you can't be telling me there's only one way to heaven. Uh, that feels so divisive, so intolerant, so exclusive. Or, or, or maybe it's the question of hell. You can't tell me that God, a loving God, would actually send people to hell, or, or even uh, more so, and this I hear all the time, what creates doubt is the questions of suffering. The question of suffering goes like this, if God is loving and he's powerful, why in the world is there so much suffering and evil in the world? Either he's not loving and doesn't care, or he's not powerful and can't do anything about it. It creates question, it creates doubt. It's the question of hypocrisy. Uh, for some people, maybe this is you, the thing that's fueling your doubt is this question of hypocrisy because you've had a bad experience with people who call themselves Christians. And so you're like, man, I think I might be okay with God, but man, the people who say they follow him create doubt. This describes some of you. Like some of you are doubting right now. You're wrestling, you're struggling with doubt. You're in a crisis of faith. And it begs the question, what do I do with my doubt? Particularly, this is a question that I want to entertain. What do I do with my doubt if, if I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of Jesus? Like, is it okay for me to doubt? Here's what I want you to know. Uh, when it comes to our doubt, you need to write some things down. Your doubt is common. You're not alone. I get asked this, Dan, do you ever doubt? Have there ever been questions that have, sure, uh, you're, you're not alone when it comes to your doubt. But something else to write down is doubt is not new. 
Your doubt is not new. It's not something that is the result of our progressive, evolving society. When you read the story of God, I love the fact the Bible is so raw and real about people's doubt. Abraham doubted. Moses doubted. Gideon, one of the judges, he doubted. Uh, the disciples doubted. Moses doubted. Uh, there's doubt all through the scriptures, which leads to this. And I want you to write this down. I'm going to explain what I mean. Your doubt is not neutral. <laughs> Your doubt's not neutral. Here's what I mean by that. Some people are defined by their doubt. And somebody who's defined by their doubt, you can write this down somewhere, is what we would call a skeptic. Maybe that's you. But your doubt's not neutral. And if you're defined by your doubt, uh, that, that's what you would call a skeptic. Author of the book Doubting, Alistair McGrath, says this, Skepticism is the decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. In other words, for the skeptic, doubting isn't a means to an end. It's just where they live and exist. I just doubt everything, right? I'm skeptical about everything. Just raise your hand. Is that you? Your doubt's not neutral. Some of you are defined by it. Uh, there's others of you. It's not neutral. Some of you deny it. And here's what happens. When I deny my doubt, it makes me superficial. I love in his classic book, Reason for God, Tim Keller says this, People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of smart people. When I deny my doubt, I'm not going to be able to handle when really, really hard things that shake me in my life happen, or I'm not going to be able to dialogue with people who really struggle with doubt. So, so what do we do if, if denying it isn't the deal and if being defined by it isn't the deal? But, but that's what we're talking about. Uh, people who deal with their doubt, here's what they do. They're not skeptics and they're not superficial, but they struggle with God in prayer with their doubt. They struggle with God. That doubt is not bad. Write that down somewhere. Doubt is not bad. But people who deal with their doubt, followers of Christ who deal with their doubt, they'll struggle with God with their doubt. That's prayer. I heard an author and a speaker say this way uh, recently. He says that sometimes doubt is like growing pains. Raise your hand if you had growing pains growing up. Remember that? It's like, oh, man. It's kind of like your body is trying to keep up with your grace. Like, and so it hurts right? And sometimes doubt is the pain that my faith grows through to keep up with the experiences of my life. So how do we deal with doubt? How do we struggle with God and the questions, the real questions that shake us off our rail? Well, that takes us to where I hope you have a Bible and you can open it to Psalm 73. Because in Psalm 73, I think we get the secret. And the secret is simply this. Two things today. We're going to begin by dissecting our doubt with God. Part of praying is dissecting our doubt with God. And when you get to Psalm 73, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, it's interesting because in Psalm 73, we have some interesting words. Here's how it begins. Psalm 73 begins a psalm of Asaph. Let's just stop for a minute because 
you're probably used to David writing the Psalms, right? Well, he wrote most of them, but there's other people who wrote some of the Psalms, and Asaph is one of those people. So you might be asking, well, who's Asaph? Well, let's just get a little context. First Chronicles, Asaph is a guy that David appoints. He's a, from, he's a Levite from the tribe of Levi, and David appoints him to lead the singing in the tabernacle. Uh, around here, we think like Pastor Aiden, right? He like is the worship leader. So Asaph is writing this, and he starts with a profession of faith. He says, God is good to Israel and to those whose hearts are pure. Those who are pure in heart. That's a statement of faith. But as we're going to find out, because we're going to keep reading, that his experience is not syncing up with his statement of faith. Like his experience is telling him something different. Look what he says. But as for me, it's like God's good to Israel, especially those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, look what he says. He says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Listen, I stop a second. That's a picture of his faith journey. When Asaph, I don't know how you picture your faith journey and what it means to follow Jesus. Asaph is picturing his relationship with God as this climb. It's not an easy stroll down this nice country lane. That's the picture here. That foothold is this metaphor of where he's going to place the weight of his faith. And what he's saying is, I just about lost my faith. I just about gave up. I nearly lost my belief. I, I almost cashed it in. For I, why? Why did he do that? For I envied, what? The arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What was it that created doubt in Asaph? What was it that caused him to come to God in prayer and struggle to dissect his doubt? It's what he saw. It's what he saw. What knocked him off balance was what he saw. It was the experience that he was having. He saw and he envied the arrogant. And he saw prosperity, which that word is shalom in Hebrew. It's literally peace. It's like this completion. It's this thing God promised to his people. He saw what God promised to his people, the blessing he promised to his people, that a lot of people who basically could care less about God, were enjoying it. That, that threw him off. <laughs> He's like, God's good, but as for me, some doubts, some questions, because what I experienced didn't sync up with what I declared. Is anybody, <laughs> is anybody relating with Asaph? Just raise your hand. Just like, you ever been there? <laughs> He's not done. Look what he says. He says, I'm watching these people, and, and, and they have no struggles. You ever thought that? Like, it doesn't seem like they ever struggle, man. My neighbors could care less about God, and it feels like everything goes right for them. And how about this? Man, I watch these people, and, and their bodies are healthy and strong. GQ, right? They just, they're free from the common human burdens. I mean, they have people doing the menial tasks for them. They're not plagued by human eels. feels like nothing ever happens to them, man. They barely even catch cold. On top of that, their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence and they are callous in their hearts and their callous hearts come, with that comes iniquity. 
Their imaginations are evil and they have no limits. They scoff and they speak with mouth. They talk down about people, right? With arrogance, they threaten oppression. They'll step on anybody's back to get what it is that they want, to get ahead. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They walk around like they own the joint and they walk around like they're God's gift to heaven. That's what he's saying. You ever feel this way? Is there anybody that's relating with Asaph? Just raise your hand. I can't see you, but just raise your hand. I am. <laughs> it says, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. It's like, man, they get a following. People just kind of, man, I'm, I'm into that. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Like they even cast dispersions on God. He says, that's what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Who out there will be honest enough to say with me that you felt this way too? What's causing the problem with him is like my experience isn't syncing up with my statement of faith. And it's got me off balance. It tells me something about dissecting my doubt with God, and that's this. I gotta get real about the experiences creating my doubt. I gotta get real. That's what Asaph is doing. He's laying it all out. He's pulling no punches. He's experienced some things, keyword, that are not jiving with his declared faith. And that's what'll throw us off, right? Here's what I know about doubt. Doubt can be fueled by our personality. Some of y'all are just doubters by nature. You, you came out the womb doubting, right? You're skeptical, like why and have questions about everything. Some of you, you just, it's part of your personality. You're, you're more skeptical than others. Uh, some of you say, well, my doubt was fueled by when I went off and got an education. And I, I meet a lot of people this way, right? You grew up in the church, you grew up following Jesus, you, your grandma taught you about God, but you met this college professor and they told you face a crutch. They told you that reason and science are actually the opponents of faith, which is not true, by the way, but they told you that, uh, that, that faith is just a psychological crutch that people need. So, so somehow it knocked you off your your game, and you begin to doubt, and some of you maybe like, I don't even believe in God, or I certainly don't believe in the God my grandma told me about. But, but here's the deal. Whereas it might be fueled by my personality and, and, and education, in the end, at the root of it, doubt is rooted in and fueled by our experiences. Stay with me on this. This is interesting. Faith in the Bible is not opposed to reason and logic. It's not what it's supposed that the, the, the opposite of faith is not reason and logic. The opposite of faith is sight or the appearance of or experience of. The way Paul puts it is this: we live by faith, not by what? Anybody know? Sight. That's what he says. So he's saying this: that my experiences are the thing that will fuel my doubt. We go through a hard time and our faith is shaken. We have experience. We, we see or experience injustice, faith shaken. We are on the receiving end of religious inconsistency. Our faith is rattled. We have a bad church experience and we think the whole thing's rigged. I heard one author put it this way. Doubt is like spiritual vertigo. You ever had vertigo? <laughs> if you've never had it, you don't want it. Because vertigo is is this, is that you, dizzy, uh, and, and, and you can't walk, like, so what happens is it's almost like your eyes are playing tricks on you, where the room starts spinning, and so you think that 
when you're stepping, you're stepping on solid ground, but you're like, everything's off balance. So you're, what you're seeing isn't matching up with what reality is. You see, here's the deal. Asaph's getting real about what's causing, and it is experiences. He's like, you know, God, you're good to Israel. You're, you're a God who said you're going to bless those who follow your pure of heart. But it, my experience is the people who don't follow you, who don't care a thing about you, who turn their back on you, they're the ones experiencing peace, prosperity. And he's like, I got vertigo. Because it's not lining up. Anybody got spiritual vertigo? You ever had spiritual vertigo? Like, you see, here's the deal. Asaph comes in the presence of God, and the first thing he does, he just gets real about the experience. He's like, he, he puts it on paper. He gets it out. There's something about being able to say out loud what I'm feeling. This, this is what it is. This is what's causing my doubt. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I, I read another author this week said this. Uh, nothing wrong with expressing that doubt. He said it this way. I think his name's Tim Mackey. I think Tim Mackey's the one who said this quote. People's doubting words about God became God's word to doubting people. Asaph's doubting words, like, was, is it okay to doubt? I don't know. His doubting words about God became God's word, part of our Bible, to doubting people. He said, I need to get real. But it doesn't stop there. Look, look, look at this next part. He, he says, that's not all, but surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocent. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. He's like, I, I've, been, I've been doing all the right things. And all I get is affliction and suffering and feels like being punished for. It, it, I think it tells us something else. If I'm going to dissect my doubt, if you're going to dissect your doubt, I'm going to have to get real about the experiences creating my doubt. But, but write this down. I need to get underneath the motives driving my doubt. I need to ask myself, what is at the root of my doubt? And what is at the root of Asaph's doubt? What did he say? I envied, verse 3, I envied the arrogant. The very first thing at the root of Asaph's doubt is envy or jealousy. He's jealous of the wicked because he wants their life. And the second thing that's at the root of his doubt is not only does he envy the life of the wicked, they're getting ahead, lifestyles of the rich and famous and the wicked. But the second thing at the root of it is he's disappointed and disenfranchised because he's following God and it feels like he's not getting ahead. He's following a God, feels like life's hard. He's following God and what it feels like is he is suffering in his life, just the antithesis. What his struggle is, is what your struggle is and what my struggle is, is when it comes to prosperity, we say, why them? And when it comes to suffering, we say, why us? Envy and pride are part of our existence. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, every human society that has ever existed, whether it is a nation, a race of people, a church, basketball team, a group of eighth grade girls, has been characterized by pride at the top and envy at the bottom. 
Anybody relating with Asaph yet? What is causing his doubt is an experience that he had. And what is fueling his anger and doubt is that it happened to him. It's close, it's personal. I don't know what exactly happened in Asaph's life, but he's watching the wicked get ahead. He's watching the arrogant kind of step on people to get what they want. And he is watching in his own life, the more he follows, the further behind he gets. You ever feel that? You ever feel like I, I give and I'm generous? I give to God, I give to others, and I struggle financially? but I watch people who are stingy and hoard and it feels like they just get more and more. You ever feel that? You ever feel like I raised my kids in the church and they rebelled and I watch those people who didn't have any time for God and their kid is like Billy Graham the second? You ever feel that? You ever feel like I waited when it came to God's design for marriage, I waited and still nobody in my life and they didn't and now they're like happily married. You ever feel that? I guess what happens when the experience, it's like what's underneath of it is, is this envy, this like, I really am envious of what they have. I remember, I mean, this, this, this is for all of us, right? I mean, it, it happens in all kinds of areas of life. I remember when my wife's dad died in his 60s early 60s he died it was like shock and i remember for quite some time after that every time we'd pass an old man particularly if he was an old man that you know just kind of doing what he wants drinking you know smoke whatever he was doing she'd always look and she'd be frustrated like why did my dad die he was a good man he was a loving man he was a caring father why does that guy get to, to live to be 90 and crotchety and cranky, you know? You ever, you ever feel that? It doesn't make sense, and it creates a, a, a spiritual imbalance, a, a vertigo, as one author puts it. What's interesting is he goes on and he says this. This is how I felt till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. We'll come back to that. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. Remember he said, I almost lost my foothold. That was a metaphor for his faith. What's he doing here? If I'm gonna dissect my doubt, I gotta get real about the experiences, what's causing it, get to the root of it. I really am envious of what they have and I'm disappointed with what I don't have and I thought somehow this would work out different. And so some of us, in our doubt, it's a faith crisis and it causes us to lose our footing and decide to put our footing or our faith somewhere else. And if you and I are going to dissect our doubt, we got to be willing to examine our alternative foothold. The imagery of a foothold is climbing up a cliff. And what he's saying is, if I leave one foothold of faith, I simply am swinging to another foothold of faith. Listen, listen close. Whether you are a Christ follower or not, struggling with doubt or not, the point is beneath all doubt is an alternative set of beliefs or a statement of faith. My doubt in one set of faith beliefs is an assertion to another set of faith beliefs. I love how in Reason for God, Tim Keller says it. He says, all doubts 
it might be good to pause it and write this down. However skeptical or cynical they may seem are really a set of alternative beliefs. Every doubt is a leap of faith. All of us have a foothold of faith. That's the point. Why is Asaph doubting? He's doubting because he believed that the wicked, his belief system is the wicked would not prosper on this earth and the devoted would never suffer. Why in the New Testament did a guy named Thomas doubt? Because he believed that messiahs in his belief system did not suffer. And if they did, they did not die. And if they did die, he believed that the laws of nature would not allow dead guys to come back to life. His belief system was, if I can't explain it, then it must not be real. That's why he doubted. It was a belief in a different set of beliefs. It was a faith, alternative belief. When you begin to question and dissect your doubts and study your skepticism, you find what you are really putting your faith in. Look at this. Alistair McGrath in his book, Doubting, says this. Christians often tend to see only one side of the statement that nobody can rationally prove that God exists. But there is another side to it. And that is nobody can disprove God exists. Christians who believe in God do so as a matter of faith. But atheists should do the same. Their belief that there is no God is exactly that, a belief. Because they cannot prove that there is no God, their atheism is also faith. When I honestly dissect my doubts, I need to see what's driving my doubts and then explore and examine where I'm placing my foothold. What am I trusting as the resolution to the tension causing my doubt? I have people come into my office and they'll tell me this, that they doubt that God exists. And I'll say, great, you can be honest here about your doubt. And I'll say, help me understand why. And they'll say, because I look at the suffering and the evil in the world and the strong beating up the weak and it's like the injustice and and uh, I just can't rationalize there being a God with all the suffering and the evil in the world. And I'll often say to them this, I, I, I'll say, that makes sense. I, I hear you. I mean, that's hard to rationalize in your mind. But I'll say, how does your belief that there is not a God resolve that tension? And it doesn't. In fact, it probably makes it worse. Your foothold is onto something that's slippery, is what Asaph is saying. I love um, how Alvin Plantinga, he's a philosopher, says that the most appalling kinds of human evil and wickedness are a problem for anyone who believes in God, but they're at least as big, if not a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God. These are the only two alternatives. Can there even be such a thing as evil and wickedness if God doesn't exist? And we're all here by some random chance? He said, I don't see how. See, the same kind of question needs to happen if I believe in a God, yet but I doubt his goodness and his fairness. Here's what it assumes. It assumes that he must be good or he must be fair if I can see or understand his goodness or fairness. See, when I begin to dissect my doubt, I get real about the experiences driving it. I get underneath the motives behind it. And then I have to, if I swing away from God, 
I have to honestly examine what the foothold of faith that I'm swinging to is. Because it's not doubt versus faith. It's like it's faith in God or it's faith in no God. So then what? Well, you see what he said. He said, here's the, here's, here's the hinge of the passage. So he's real. He's doubting his doubt. He's dissecting his doubt. He says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. What do I do with my doubt? I dissect it with God and then write this down. I struggle with my doubt into the sanctuary of God. See, that's what he did. He enters the sanctuary of God. That's what it says. What was the sanctuary of God? When the tabernacle and temple, he goes to church, okay, in a manner of speaking. That was the place where the community of faith gathered. They would have sung. They would have read scripture. There would have been conversation, learning together. What is he saying? How do you and I struggle with our doubt into the sanctuary of God? Let me give you three things and we're done. Three things, we're done, okay? First is this. If I'm gonna struggle with my doubt into the sanctuary of God, I need to identify with the community of wrestlers who worship. I think this is instructive. He was struggling and he went to church or where the community gathered and worshiped and talked and taught. He got around others who were on the same faith climb he was. It's instructive and guys, it's counterintuitive because most people, I've been a pastor 28 years, most people who get in a faith crisis, doubt begins to create spiritual vertigo that creates a faith crisis. Here's what our natural instincts tell us to do. When we have a faith crisis or we're wrestling in our spiritual journey, most people avoid church. They avoid the gathering of the church and they separate themselves from others who are on the spiritual journey they're on. The point is this. Keller says this in his book, you did not get into your doubt simply by thinking and you will not get out simply by thinking. Doubt is not something that is simply brought on by thinking and logic. It is brought on by experience. You were plunged into your doubt by some experience, something you saw, something that happened. And the only way out is experience and engaging your senses, he says, as you worship God with the people of God. Every Sunday in our gathering room, is a community of worshiping wrestlers. If you're a follower of Christ, you worship and you are with other worshipers who wrestle and struggle in the sanctuary. We're willing to wrestle right into worship. If you're wrestling, you're not alone. And I don't think the solution to your doubt is to simply be alone until your doubt evaporates. You realize that in the New Testament, we are called to wrestle, right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the e in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
What he's saying is this, is that uh, we wrestle. We're a, a group of people who wrestle, and it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against culture. It's not against other people. It's not against the neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. It's not against the wicked. It's not against the arrogant. It's not against the people who seem to be getting ahead when we don't. That's not who we wrestle against. But from the very beginning of God's story, Satan's mode of operation has, to, has been to create spiritual vertigo create doubt right from the beginning of the story. So I think what he's saying is this, is that I need to struggle into the sanctuary of God. Do you know in the same book, in the book of Ephesians, do you know what the temple of God is? Check out chapter two. The temple of God is the gathering of God's people. That somehow collectively when we gather, we make up the sanctuary, the temple of God. He's saying don't avoid it, but he's saying struggle into it. I hear people saying, I haven't been to church where I've been really struggling with doubt. I'm like, that's the time to run into the community. Some of you might be watching this and maybe the reason, maybe the reason that you're not here, and if you're not here for health reasons or maybe you live far away, I'm so glad you're joining, but maybe the reason is because you're like, I'm not going to go and, and be in live in-person services because I'm struggling with questions that I have for God. That's when you need to be with the community of worshipers who wrestle together, who journey together, who climb together. That's what he's saying. I, I think there's another thing in the passage that is worth writing down that not only... Do I want to identify with the community of worshipers who wrestle, but I want to worship till God reorders my perspective and my passion. I, I, I want to worship. Do you, do you see that in Psalm 73? He was envious of what? The good life of the arrogant and the wicked. Why? Why? Because he only saw the temporary success and the treasure of their life. And what he longed for was what they had, but totally missed who they were missing. Check this out. He says this. Then I understood their final destination. He says, when I came in the sanctuary and I wrestled with the, and I worshiped and I struggled in the sanctuary of God, he says, surely you place them on slippery ground. They don't have a good foothold. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed. It's quick. Life is quick. It, all the things they're enjoying is but brief. It's, it's but a moment. It's completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. It's like, you ever dream? Sometimes you can dream and it's like you dream a whole life's worth of experiences. You wake up and realize, man, that was like probably a 10 minute dream. He said, life is like that. It's like, James says, it's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. When you arise, Lord, you despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. He says, sometimes, sometimes our doubt is caused by the fact that our perspective is short-sighted. We have a temporary lens on, and in the presence of God, the perspective of God offers a lens that corrects our short-sightedness. That, that the things that we look at that they're enjoying, he says, life's but a vapor, it's here and gone. It makes me think I heard um, one preacher was talking, uh, uh, using an illustration, and it reminded me, I don't know what year it was, but... Uh, Steve Harvey was hosting either Miss America or Miss Universe, and you might remember this. And and uh, uh, if if you watched it, he placed on the wrong lady the crown, and then a, a few minutes later they recognize the issue, and they he has to come back out and he says this was my fault, and he has to 
uncrown her and place the crown on the real Miss America or Miss Universe. <laughs> and, and if you would have taped that, you, you would watch that play back, and if you knew how it ended, you'd be like, oh, you'd feel so terrible for the lady for a few brief minutes wearing this crown and strutting around like she's Miss Universe because you know in just a few minutes, just a few minutes, all of that is going to evaporate in the real Miss America. The real, I think what he's saying is this, that in the presence of God, my perspective, I realize how quick life is, how short it is. And the perspective of God creates this help and correction for my short-sightedness. Something else going on, he was envious of what they had, and you know what it caused him to do? He missed the treasure of what he had. He says this, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. It's like, I, I kind of lost track. You hold me by my right hand. He says, I'm, I'm acting like an animal in your presence, just struggling. He says, but you always treat me like a son. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. That's the perspective. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we're honest, sometimes our struggle is driven not simply by being short-sighted, but our struggle is that we see God as a means to an end. That, that, that sometimes our doubt is created because we see God as useful instead of beautiful. What changed in Asaph is this. He saw God as the ends to his desires. He's like, who have I but you? Like all these things are gonna fade. In a minute, the crown's gonna be lifted. It's temporary. But what I have, the beauty of knowing you and the, the hope of life forever with you, is something nothing can take away. And then he says this, those who are Far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What's going on here? It was in the sanctuary where the community of worshipers gathered. And it was in the sanctuary where the word of God was taught. It was in the sanctuary where the, 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 the singing and the worship would have taken place. But there's something else that the sanctuary would have reminded him of, and that would have been of the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was made so that it was possible for us to enjoy the nearness with God. And here's the point. You see, when I struggle with my doubt into the sanctuary of God, I remember the amazing grace of his nearness. The powerful story of the gospel is at the cross, Jesus experienced the greatest spiritual vertigo. And he cried with his last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who was forsaken for me is the one who grabs my hand and makes it possible for me as a sinner to experience the nearness of a holy God, even in the middle of my struggle. And he's asking you to grab his hand today because he endured the farness from God so that we could enjoy the nearness of God, even in our struggle even in our doubt. Some of you are doubting. You need to be defined by it. I'm just a skeptic. You can deny it superficial or you can deal with it. And you can dissect your doubt with God. 
Tell him what's causing it, the experiences, the things you're seeing, the things that are happening, and then get under the root of it. And for some of you that are like, I'm just turning my back, well, I'm glad you're watching, but at least be honest enough to examine the alternative foothold where you're going to place your faith. You see, his invitation is this, to struggle with him into the sanctuary of God, to identify with the community of worshiping wrestlers. We're in this together, climbing together. In the middle of that, ask God to reorder our perspective, reorder our passion. And as we do that, to never forget the sacrifice. That the one who experienced the farness of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is the one whose hand we hold that allows for us to enjoy the nearness of God. His hand's reaching out to you today. Father, teach us. Some of us are doubting. Help us to be honest with our doubt, to dissect it, struggle into your presence with it. God, I pray that in that moment that you would drive us deeper into an understanding of your love and your presence and your grace and your mercy in our life. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Asaph and his honesty. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.